This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Opheliad in New South Wales, Australia, September 2006. Seven Little Australians by Ethel Turner. Chapter 8 A Catapult and a Catastrophe. O oh, sweet pale Margaret, O oh, rare pale Margaret, what lit your eyes with tearful power? The dusk had fallen very softly and tenderly over the garden and the paddocks and the river. There was just the faintest wind at the water's edge, but it seemed almost too tired after the hot long day to breathe and make ripples. Very slowly the grey still light deepened, and a white star or two came out and blinked up away in the high far heavens. Down behind the gum-trees, across the river, there was a still whiter moon. A stretch of water near was beginning to smile up to it. Meg hoped it would not climb past the tree-tops before eight o'clock, or the long paddocks would be flooded with light and she would be seen. At tea-time, and during the early part of the evening, she was preoccupied and inclined to be irritable in her anxiety, and she snubbed Bunty two or three times, quite unkindly. He had been hovering about her ever since six o'clock, in almost a pitiable way. It was characteristic of this small boy that, when he had been tempted into departing from the paths of truth, he was absolutely wretched until he had confessed, and rubbed his little unclean hands into his wet eyes, until he was a sight to dream of, not to tell. Pip said it was because he was a coward, and had not the moral courage to go to sleep with a lie on his soul, for fear he might wake up and see an angel with a fiery sword standing by his bedside. And I must sorrowfully acknowledge this seemed a truer view of the case than believing the boy was really impressed with the heinousness of his offence, and anxious to make amends. For the very next day, if occasion sufficiently strong offered, he would fall again, and the very next night would creep up to somebody and whimper with his knuckles in his eyes that he had told a story. <laughs> By seven o'clock this particular evening he was miserably repentant. Several tears had trickled down his cheeks and mingled with the ink of the map he was engaged upon for Miss Marsh. He established himself at Meg's elbow and kept looking up into her face in a yearning love-and-forgive-me kind of way that she found infinitely embarrassing for she had begun to suspect from his strange conduct that he had in some way learned the contents of her note and was trying to discourage her from her enterprise. The more he gazed at her, the redder and more uncomfortable she became. "'You can have my new catapult,' he whispered once, giving her a tearful, imploring look that she interpreted as an entreaty to stay safely at home. At last the clock had travelled up to eight, and the children being engaged in a wordy warfare over the possession of a certain stray dog that had come to Miss Rule in the afternoon, she slipped out of the room unobserved. No one was in the hall, and she picked up the becoming fleecy cloud she had hidden there, twisted it round her head, and crept out of the side door and along the first path. Down in the garden the ground was white with fallen rose leaves, and the air full of their dying breath. A clump of pampas grass stood tall and soft against the sky. Some native trees, left growing among the cultivated shrubs, stretched silver-white arms up to the moon and gave the little hurrying figure a ghostly kind of feeling. Out of the gate and into the first paddock, where the rose scent did not come at all, and only a pungent smell of wattle was in the thin, hushed air. More gum-trees and more white ghostly arms. Then a sharp movement near the fence, a thick sepulchral whisper 
and a stifled scream from Meg. "'Here's the catapult, Meg, to take it,' Bunty said, his face white and miserable. "'You little stupid! What do you mean coming here creeping like this?' Meg said, angry as soon as her heart began to beat again. "'I only wa wanted to please you, Meggie,' the little boy said with a bitter sob in his voice. He had put both his arms round her waist and was burying his nose in her white muslin dress. She shook him off hastily. "'All right, there, thanks,' she said. "'Now go home, Bunty. I want to have a quiet walk in the moonlight by myself.' He screwed his knuckles as far into his eyes as they would go. His mouth opened and his lower lip dropped down, down. "'I just told you a b big story,' he wept, rocking to and fro where he stood. "'Did you? Oh, all right, now go home,' she said impatiently. "'You always are telling stories, Bunty, you know, so I'm not surprised. "'There, go along.' "'But, but, but I'm, I must tell you all about it,' he said, "'still engaged in driving his eyes into his head. "'No, you needn't. I'll forgive you this time,' she said magnanimously. "'Only don't do it again. "'Now run away at once, or you won't have your map done, "'and Miss Marsh will punish you.' His eyes returned to their proper position, likewise his hands. His heart was perfectly light again as he turned to go back to the house. When he had gone a few steps, he came back. "'Do you want that catapult very much, Meg?' he said gently. "'You're only a girl, so I don't expect it would be very much good to you, would it?' "'No, I don't want it. Here, take it and hurry back. Think of your map,' Meg returned, in a very fever of impatience at his slowness." And then Bunty, utterly happy once more, turned and ran away gaily up to the house. And Meg let down the slip-rail, put it back in its place with trembling fingers, and fled in wild haste through the two remaining paddocks. The wattle-scrub at the end was very quiet. There was not a rustle, not a sound of a voice, not a sound of the affected little laugh that generally told when Aldith was near. Meg stopped breathless and peered among the bushes. There was a tall figure leaning against the fence. "'Andrew?' she said in a sharp whisper, and forgetting in her anxiety that she never called him by his Christian name. "'Where are the others? Hasn't Aldith come?' There was the smell of a cigar, and, looking closely, she saw to her horror it was Alan. "'Oh!' she said in an indescribable tone. Her heart gave one frightened, shamed bound, and then seemed to stop beating altogether. She looked up at him as if entreating him not to have too bad an opinion of her, but his face wore the contemptuous look she had grown to dread, and his lips were finely curled. "'I I only came out for a little walk. It is such a beautiful evening,' she said with miserable lameness. Then, in a tone of justification, she added, "'It's my father's paddock, too.' He leaned back against the fence and looked down at her. Flossie gave me your note, and as it seemed addressed to me, and I was told it was for me, I opened it, he said. You knew it was for Andrew, she said, not looking at him, however. So I presumed when I had read it, he returned slowly. But Andrew has not come back tonight yet, so I came instead. It's all the same as long as it's a boy, isn't it? The girl made no reply only put her hand up and drew the cloud more closely round her head. His lips curled a little more. "'And I know how to kiss, too, I assure you. I am quite a good hand at it, though you may not think so. Oh, yes, I know you said you did not want to be kissed, but then girls always say that, don't they? 
even when they expect it most. Still Meg did not speak, and the calm, merciless tone went on. "'I'm afraid it is hardly dark enough for you, is it? "'The moon is very much in the way, do you not think so? "'Still, perhaps we can find a darker place further on, "'and then I can kiss you without danger. "'What's the matter? "'Are you always as quiet as this with Andrew?' "'Oh, don't!' said Meg in a choking voice. "'The mocking tone died instantly out of his voice. "'Miss Meg, you used to seem such a nice little girl,' he said quietly. "'What have you let that horrid McCarthy girl spoil you for? "'For she is horrid, though you may not think so.' "'Meg did not speak or move, "'and he went on with a gentle earnestness "'that she had not thought him capable of. "'I have watched her on the boat, "'systematically going to work to spoil you, "'and I can't help thinking of the pity of it. "'I imagined how I should feel "'if my little sister Flossie ever fell in with such a girl "'and began to flirt and make herself conspicuous, "'and I wondered, would you mind if I spoke to you about it? "'Are you very angry with me, Miss Meg?' "'But Meg leaned her head against the rough fence "'and began to sob, little dry, heartbroken sobs "'that went to the boy's warm heart. "'I oughtn't to have spoken as I did at first. "'I was a perfect brute,' he said remorsefully. "'Forgive me, won't you? "'Please, little Miss Meg, "'I would rather cut my hand off than really hurt you.' "'This last was a little consoling at any rate, "'and Meg lifted her face half a second, "'white and pathetic in the moonlight, "'and all wet with grievous tears. "'I, I, oh, indeed, I have not been quite so horrid as you think,' "'she said brokenly. "'I didn't want to come this walk. "'And, oh, indeed, 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 I wouldn't allow anyone to kiss me. "'Oh, please do believe me.' "'I do, I do indeed,' he said eagerly. "'I only said it because, well... "'Because I am a great rough brute "'and I don't know how to talk to a little tender girl. "'Dear Miss Meg, do shake hands "'and tell me you forgive my boorishness.' "'Meg extended a small white hand "'and he shook it warmly. "'Then they walked up the paddocks together "'and parted at a broken gate leading into the garden. "'I'll never flirt again while I live,' "'she said with great earnestness "'as he bade her good-bye. "'And he answered encouragingly, "'No, I'm quite sure you won't. "'Leave it to girls like Aldith, won't you?' You only wanted to be set straight. Goodbye, little Miss Meg. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 Consequences However could you do it? Some day, no doubt, you'll rue it. Meg's troubles were not quite over, however, even yet. When she got into the house, Nellie met her in the hall and stared at her. "'Where have you been?' she said, a slow wonder in her round eyes. "'I've been hunting and hunting for you.' "'What for?' said Meg shortly. "'Oh, Dr. Gomston and Mrs. Gomston and two Miss Gomstons are in the drawing-room, "'and I think they'll stay for ever and ever.' "'Well?' said Meg. "'And the General is ill again, and Esther says she won't leave him for a second, "'not if Gog and Magog were down there dying to see her.' "'Well,' said Meg again, "'and father is as mad as he can be "'and is having to keep them all amused himself. "'He sung My Sweetheart When a Boy and Mona "'and he's told them all about his horses "'and now I suppose he doesn't know what to do.' "'Well, I can't help it,' Meg said wearily "'and as if the subject had no interest for her. "'But you'll just have to,' Nell cried sharply. "'I've done my best.' 
"'He sent out and said we were to go in, and you weren't anywhere, so there was only Baby and me.' "'And what did you do?' Meg asked, curious in spite of herself. "'Oh, Baby talked to Miss Gormston, and they asked me to play,' she returned. "'So I played the keel row. Only I forgot till I had finished that it was in two sharps,' she added sadly. "'And then Baby told Mrs. Gormston all about Judy leaving the general at the barracks "'and being sent to boarding school for it, and about the green frog Bunty gave her, "'and then Father said we'd better go to bed and asked why ever you didn't come in.' "'I'll go, I'll go,' Meg said hastily. "'He'll be fearfully cross tomorrow about it. "'Oh, and Nell, go and tell Martha to send in the wine and biscuits and things in half an hour.' "'She flung off her cloud, smoothed her ruffled hair, "'and peeped in the hall-stand glass to see if the night wind "'had taken away the traces of her recent tears. "'Then she went into the drawing-room, "'where her father was looking quite heated and unhappy "'over his efforts to entertain four guests, "'who were of the class popularly known as Heavy in Hand. "'Play something, Meg.' he said presently when greetings were finished and a silence seemed to be settling down over them all again. Or sing something that will be better. Haven't you anything you can sing? Now Meg on ordinary occasions had a pleasant fresh little voice of her own that could be listened to with a certain amount of pleasure. But this evening she was tired and excited and unhappy. She sang within a mile of Edinburgh town and was exceedingly flat all through. She knew her father was sitting on edge all the time, and that her mistakes were grating on him, and at the end of the song, rather than turn round immediately and face them all, she began to play Kowalski's March Hongroise. But the keys seemed to be rising up and hitting her hands, and the piano was growing unsteady and rocking to and fro in an alarming manner. She made a horrible jangle as she clutched at the music-holder for safety, and the next minute swayed from the stool and fed in a dead faint right into Dr. Gormston's arms, providentially extended just in time. The heavy, heated atmosphere had proved too much for her in her unhinged state of mind. Captain Walcott was extraordinarily upset by the occurrence. Not one of his children had ever done such a thing before. And as Meg lay on the sofa with her little fair head drooping against the red frilled cushions, her face white and unconscious, she looked strangely like her mother, whom he had buried out in the churchyard four years ago. He went to the filter for a glass of water, and, as it trickled, wondered in a dull mechanical kind of way if his little dead wife thought he had been too quick in appointing Esther to her kingdom. And then, as he stood near the sofa and looked at the death-like face, he wondered with a cold chill at his heart whether Meg was going to die too, and if so, would she be able to tell the same little wife that Esther received more tenderness at his hands than she had done? His reverie was interrupted by the doctor's sharp, surprised voice. He was talking to Esther, who had been hastily summoned to the scene, and who had helped to unfasten the pretty bodice. "'Why, the child is tight-laced,' he said. "'Surely you must have noticed it, madam. That pressure, if it has been constant, has been enough to half kill her.' "'Chut, faint indeed! "'I wonder she has not taken fits "'or gone into a decline before this.' "'Then a cloud of trouble came over Esther's beautiful face. "'She had failed again in her duty. "'Her husband was regarding her almost gloomily from the sofa "'where the little figure lay in its crumpled muslin dress, "'and her heart told her these children "'were not receiving a mother's care at her hands. "'Afterwards, when Meg was safely in bed "'and the excitement all over, she went up to her husband almost timidly. "'I'm only twenty, Jack. 
"'Don't be too hard on me,' she said with a little sob in her voice. "'I can't be all to them that she was, can I?' He kissed the bright, beautiful head against his shoulder and comforted her with a tender word or two. But again and again that night there came to him Meg's white, still face as it lay on the scarlet cushions, and he knew the wind that stirred the curtains at the window had been playing with the long grass in the churchyard a few minutes since. End of chapter 9